you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open them to chapter 22 of Psalms, the 22nd Psalm. Listen, if you didn't bring a Bible, I would encourage you to grab one out of the pew and uh, turn to page 543. We're going to spend some time there. There is, as always, a Bible app event, and it has a lot of text in it. I put a lot of notes in that this time because I, I want to cover a lot of ground, and some of it's going to be very specific. So I want you to be able to kind of grasp what we have to say today. I kind of want to begin by reminding you that we're talking about resilience. Namely, we're talking about some tools that God has given us so that whenever life knocks us down, whenever we find ourselves just kind of blown away by something, that we're able to bounce back from that. We're able to stand back up. So far as we've been talking about these tools, one of the tools we've addressed is spiritual companionship. Another one is spiritual mentoring. And last week we talked about personal responsibility, that God has given us all these things almost as gifts so that we are able to be resilient. We're able to get back up when we find ourselves down. In fact, God has given us many tools. We're going to talk about all of these in the weeks that are ahead, Lord willing, and we're going to address them. Today, what I want to talk to you about is your ability to process pain and the way that you can move through grief. And actually, what I want to suggest to you is this. There are right and wrong ways to grieve. And if you grieve well, you will be resilient. But if you grieve poorly, all bets are off. It can really mess with you if you don't know how to grieve. I'd been in ministry for just a few days, literally, right out of school, right in my first church. And a young couple came up to me. They were in their 30s. They had some kids. And they came up to me and they said, we need to talk to you. Um, my wife's mom, the husband said, has cancer and she's going to die any time now. I never faced anything like that. My family never had that kind of incident. The mom was only 50-some years old, younger than I am even now. She might have been 54 or 56 years old. We talked I did the funeral service. This is so embarrassing. I can't remember. That funeral service was either eight or 12 minutes long. That's how bad I was at funeral services. The only thing that rescued it is the head elder Merle gave a little bit of a eulogy in it to round it up to 18 minutes or so, you know. But I had no idea what I was doing. As the days went on after that, we got together with this couple and we talked to them about what they were going through. We helped them just as friends to kind of process their loss. And that is really when my eyes were open to the reality that if we're going to be healthy, we're going to have to process our grief. We're going to have to move through it in some kind of way. In fact, I said this before, really learning to process your grief is a little bit of a learning process. It's something you kind of have to work on and and kind of figure out how to do and, and move through. And as that family did that, they, I don't mean to sound glib, but they bounced back. It sounds kind of weird, right? So like, I'm in a great grief, but I've bounced back. But they did. They went through it well, and uh, they came back healthy. Have you seen others that didn't do that? Have you seen people who have gone through a great grief, and they didn't manage it well, and they didn't bounce back? And while none of us are really never the same after we've encountered a great grief, we all know people who are never the same, that it overwhelmed them. They never really learned to go through your grief. You actually have to go through your grief. And that's what we see in our text today. We see Jesus in our text today. He is on the cross, and he's going through 
the grief that accompanies what he's doing. The passage we're actually going to look at is something called a messianic psalm. So let me take just a moment and give you an understanding of what that means. A messianic psalm, the word messianic comes from the word messiah, which is translated in Greek Christ. So this is a Christ-ic psalm. It's a psalm that was written a thousand years or so before Jesus hung on the cross. And yet the words of that, as scholars look at it, as we'll look at it today, you can see those words, they belong right in Jesus' mouth. It fits so prophetically as this psalm was being written, it was looking forward to what Jesus was going to do on the cross. As I read it, you'll say, wow, I understand perfectly why scholars call this a messianic song because Jesus uses some of the very words from this psalm as he hangs on the cross in what we traditionally think of as the seven last words of Christ. So I'd like to ask you, I hope your Bibles are open. I hope you'll keep them open because we're going to refer back here again and again. I'd like to ask you to read through this psalm with me. It's 31 verses. We're not going to read all 31. We're going to take chunks of it as we go, okay? The very first verse, look at what it says. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you don't answer. By night, but I find no rest. Move ahead to verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let the Lord deliver him since he delights in him. Skip down to verse 11. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions that tear the head, that tear their prey open rather, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My head has turned to wax. It is melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of the earth. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Okay, let's stop there. What I kind of want you to see is that as you're reading this, you can begin to understand that Jesus knew how grief can feel. And the language that is used is powerful. When you think of the feelings that are expressed here, you can see that grief can make you feel alone and abandoned. Like there's no one there for you. Go back to the very first words of the psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? I am alone. I'm abandoned. If you've ever called friends up on a weekend and said, hey, you want to do this? And come away empty and... <laughs> They were all busy. If you ever sat alone at a lunch table and didn't want to be sitting alone at the lunch table, if you have ever been left out of a group chat and everyone's talking about it, but you, then you know how aloneness feels. And you know a little bit of how grief feels alone, abandoned. And of course, all of us have far greater griefs than those. Many of us, we've already experienced them. Many of us, we have yet to experience them. 
When someone you love has a life-threatening illness, that's a big grief. Or when your family that just seemed to be your refuge always suddenly feels fractured, that's a grief. Or when someone you love passes away, someone you wonder, how will I live without them? That's a grief. And in that grief, you can be with a whole group of people and yet you can feel what Jesus is talking about here because grief carries with it a sense of aloneness, a sense of abandonment. It carries other things as well. Grief can make you feel alone and abandoned. Grief can make you feel unloved. And even as though you are unlovable yourself. If you take a look at verse 6, you see it says, but I am a worm, not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by people. Okay, if this is a messianic psalm, and I believe it is, then this is how Jesus felt on the cross. Covered with our sin and our shame, he didn't even feel human. And the echoes of the crowd saying, crucify him, crucify him, had to be in his mind and in his heart, despised seemingly by everyone. It is a grievous thing to feel that way. And here's the odd part, that you can do everything right and still end up feeling alone and rejected and abandoned because of people, and you can feel unloved and unlovable because of the circumstances. I don't generally read Salon Magazine, um, but a few years ago, there was an article in it that caught my eye. It was an article about U2, and the title of the article was this, How U2 Became the Most Hated Band in America. And I like U2. I like Bono. I like the music. I like most of the message. I like the sound. I like the good things he does. He has in mind a stop hunger <laughs> on the whole planet. That's a pretty stout goal. And he meets with kings and princes and presidents and with parliamentarians and works hard toward that end. I like them. So how does U2 become the most hated band in America? And, and you know, the author of the magazine, he's kind of thrown out some ideas. Maybe it's because of that thing that happened with Apple. Because if you have an iPhone, you know that Apple paid U2 for their latest album and put it on everybody's iPhone, right? And people didn't know U2 were like, who put this on there? I don't like this junk on my phone, you know? And, and so they, they just didn't get mad at Apple who put it on there. They got mad at you too. Maybe, but I don't think that's why they're the most hated band in America. Another suggestion that was in the article was, well, you two have sold out. No, they haven't. <laughs> You're not watching if you think they sold out. That's not why they're the most hated band in America. Well, some people say they just became too popular, you know? And most of us would say, I don't like the same music as everyone else because I'm special. I like different music. You know, that's a bandwagon we all jump on, right? Right? Yeah. No, that's not why they're hated. It's kind of funny. My theory aligns with what the writer of the article in Salon said. The writer of the article in Salon said that the reason you too is the most hated band in America is because Bono, Bono won't stop talking about poor people. He's doing good. He's talking about poverty. We don't like that, so we hate him because of that. In fact, the very last sentence in the article that tells Bono how to, Bono rather, how to prepare his image says, stop caring about poor people, Bono, then we'll love you. Sounds crazy, right? I wonder how Bono feels about that. I got to think if you got all the success he has and all the money he has and all the wherewithal that he has, you really don't mind if people don't like you because you did something good. But I think for the rest of us, it's probably a pretty grievous thing. 
When you put yourself out there and you try to do something good and the people in your workplace begin to treat you poorly because of that very thing, that is a grievous thing. And you can feel unloved. You can feel unlovable. You can feel that grief. Grief makes you feel unloved and unlovable. That is what it did to Jesus on the cross. And additionally, it can make you feel foolish and shameful. Now, I'm not saying Jesus ever felt foolish. I don't believe that he did. He knew what he was doing. He came to die, but you have to understand this. He felt shame, not because of anything he did, but because he carried our shame. So he felt it. Look at verse 7 where it says, All who see me mock me, they hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. They said, Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Centuries later, after those words are penned, centuries later, you find this crowd gathering at the foot of Jesus' cross as he hangs there. And they're saying in Matthew 27, He saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross. And then we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him. For he said, I am the son of God. And there it is, that kind of mockery and shame being leveled and being laid on Jesus. That is a grievous thing. And he felt that grief of shame. Grief can make you feel foolish and shameful. And grief can make you feel attacked and vulnerable. In verse 12, it says, many bulls surround me and the roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. Grief makes you feel attacked. (laughs) Whatever I use, To keep myself together, when grief comes to my doorstep, that thing feels pretty wobbly. You know, the guy that he has that really nice car, and that's kind of his identity. I got the cool car. When he's faced with grief, that car seems pretty insignificant. Or that woman that has that great musical ability, and she can play any instrument, she can sing anything. And, And then when grief comes to her door, all that talent seems pretty useless in her mind. Even the parent who has the perfect family, when grief comes, that whole family can feel, feel vulnerable and they feel attacked. Grief brings all those things to our door and it makes us feel exhausted and spent. If you have dealt with grief, you know how tired it makes you. In fact, when I pray for someone who's been through grief, I always pray that the night after the funeral service, for example, I pray that they'll sleep like a baby because you're exhausted by that point and you feel spent at that point. And you might even say, I am poured out like water. (laughs) My heart has turned to wax and melted within me. Now make no mistake, Jesus was experiencing many of these things for a variety of different ways, but one of, or reasons rather, but one of those reasons was because of the grief that he was facing. And in his words in Psalm 22, he is showing us how he himself is processing that grief. Live from Calvary, from the cross, you get to see how Jesus processes grief. And that's what Psalm 22 is unfolding to us. And the psalm really shows us that God offers help to us in all of these. That he helps you move through the grief so that you can recover it. God offers help to you in your grieving. And he can help like no one else can. Now, I want to warn you. Let me step down here a minute. I want to warn you that the next part of this sermon may feel impractical to you. It it may feel like That's a cliche, Pastor Steve. I've heard that before. 
that doesn't seem like it's any help at all. Give me something I can use. I, I just don't know that that's really helpful. And I, here's what I want to say to you. I'm pulling these things from the words of Jesus in Psalm 22 as he's on the cross. So I know they're valuable. I, I want to suggest to you that if you feel like I'm not, this isn't really helping me, that maybe you're just not ready at a place in your life where it can be helpful to you. That's okay. Just let it soak in, all right? Just just hear it and say, okay. Because I can guarantee you, if I were to read this sermon at a funeral, people would check out after five minutes and not get a bit of it. The time for you to prepare for the grief is ahead of time so that you have this tool so you can be resilient. So what I'm going to share with you today, it kind of reminds me of when I was going into ministry, my dad showed up at Bible college, I was maybe two or three years into it, and he had a commentary maybe this thick, and he said, I bought this for you. I talked to our pastor, who I'd had since I was six years old, and Pastor Henkel said, this is a great commentary. Your son could probably use it. So I bought it for you. And I looked at that commentary and I said, God, I have com- this is a commentary on the whole Bible? I have commentaries thicker than this just on the book of Romans. What is that? This commentary. Why would my pastor tell my dad to get this commentary? Here's the deal. I was immature, and I didn't see the value of that commentary. Guess what commentary I use more than all my other commentaries put together? that commentary. There was nothing wrong with the commentary. It's that my knowledge and my understanding and my experience didn't help me to value that commentary. That's the way this information may be today. So just let it soak in. Just think about it. Or it may be incredibly relevant for you today. And you may be going, oh yeah, God, that's what I need. So let me give you just some ways that God or some things that God provides for us as we're going through grief. And the first of these things is his presence. He gives you nearness when there's no one else to help. And his nearness is incredibly valuable. Now, in the first service, when I said the first thing that he gives you is his nearness, there was a woman there who had lost her only child and her husband. And as soon as I said that, she went just like that. I sent her in the lobby afterwards. She said, that was a great sermon. I said, I saw you nodding on the nearness. She said, I never could have made it without the presence of God in my life. So this is a big one. It's just God being there. It's just him being there. (laughs) When I uh, graduated from college, I bought a Honda 500, XL 500. That was a fun bike. I never had to replace the front wheel on that bike because it was never on the ground. (laughs) You know? Love that bike. Had a weird quirk. When you turned off the ignition, it kept running. When you hit the kill switch, it kept running. The only way to get it to go off is turn the handlebars the whole way to the right, and then it went, blah, 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 and it stopped. And I knew there's an electrical problem there. There's a wire with a brake in it that's not shorting out the spark, and it's allowing it to keep running. That needs fixed, but I don't know if I can fix that. And so I drove it to my dad's house, to my dad and mom's house, and I walked up to my dad. He was sitting on the porch. He's retired. And I said, Dad, That Honda has an electrical problem. Come and help me fix it. And my dad, who could fix almost anything except electrical problems in vehicles, said, I can't fix electrical problems in vehicles. I have nothing in that. I don't know anything about that. Plus, it's Japanese. They probably use backwards electricity. I don't know that I can figure it out. That's my dad, right? And I said, Dad, I don't care if you know about that. I just want you there with me. And he didn't know anything about it. But we stood in the garage and we fixed that motorcycle together. It is one of my favorite memories of my dad. One of my favorites. I still want him with me. Not my dad, dad. 
My dad, dad's in heaven. I would not wish him back to this corrupted world for love or money, right? But I want my heavenly dad with me. He's a good, good father. And I want his presence with me if my motorcycle's broken or if my heart is broken. I need him there. And the beautiful thing is that he is there. In verse 11, you have Jesus saying, do not be far from me for trouble is near me. And, and, and again in verse 19, do not be far from me. You're my strength, come and help me. Jesus, in a sense, was abandoned because he was carrying our sin and shame. But because he was forsaken, we are forgiven. And because he was abandoned, we have the presence of God always. In fact, Psalm 34 says that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. You have his presence. The New Testament says that we're hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but here's the line, catch it, but not abandoned. We're struck down, but not destroyed. We're resilient because of the presence of God. And Jesus says, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. He's always there. Pastor Steve, what is it that God gives me in order to help me through grief? He gives you himself. He gives you his presence. He is there with you. And that is a great, great gift. Here's another one he gives you. He gives you protection. He gives you protection. Verse 20 says, deliver me from the sword. Verse 21, rescue me from the mouth of lions. Grief. It's a dangerous thing. Grief is a dangerous thing. It can make you feel like you want to die. And people say crazy things because of that. I'm lost without your love. You know that song? I'm going to sing it, ready? Life without you isn't worth an honor. You know, right? I can't live if living is without you. That is not going online. Okay? But you hear all the songs, right? And all the songs are about how I'm not going to be able to make it. And sometimes in the midst of grief, you hear people say that out loud. They don't mean it probably. But they're thinking it. I can't go on. I can't live. This pain is too heavy. That is a dangerous place to be. But here's what you have to know. In the midst of that danger, as the roaring lion would want to devour you, there is one who is protecting you. And that's God. And one of the ways he protects you is he takes that emptiness that that the grief has placed into your life and he fills it with his presence and he fills it with a purpose. We're watching this in our church right now. We're seeing it happen in our church. I have permission to share this story. It's Lois Miller. (laughs) You know, over the past several months, just a few months ago, Lois lost her brother Ellis. He passed away. Lois and Ellis, as brother and sister, were so close that everyone thought they were married. And neither one of them was fond of that thought, right? But that's how close they were. They loved one another and cared for one another like a brother and sister should. He took sick. A year or so later, being in the nursing home, he passed away. That left a huge hole in Lois's life. She had been getting up in the morning, fixing breakfast, and then heading up to see Ellis at the nursing home. She'd be there in the afternoon. She'd be there in the evening. She was there as though she were his wife, watching him, caring for him, helping him. And suddenly, not only is there a huge hole in her heart, now there's a huge hole in her schedule What is she going to do with that? And God protects her by providing a meaningful purpose for her. (laughs) She encourages people in the church. She visits with people in the church. She helps people 
not just in the church, but beyond. She has been transporting Judy Kim and maybe sometimes Chuck back and forth to doctor's appointments over the past several weeks. When I asked her for permission, can I share this story, Lois, about you? She said, you can share it, Pastor, but actually I get more out of it than I give. Yes, you do. And that's a gift of God. That's a gift of God to rescue you, to protect you from danger. She is finding a pathway through her grief. And God's protecting her from danger, giving her a reason to live, to go on. Pastor Steve, what does God give me when I'm grieving? He gives you protection by providing you purpose and meaning in your life. He gives you as well an attentive ear. The man that gave us the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, C.S. Lewis, he wrote with brilliance and with honesty. He suffered the loss of his own wife in a death to cancer. And afterward, he wrote some words about it that I find deeply disturbing. I don't like these words. I'm going to read them to you. When you're happy, so happy you have no sense of needing God, so happy that you're tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption, if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to God when you're desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and the sound of bolting and double bolting from the inside. And after that, silence. You might as well turn away. First time I ran down, I said, Lewis, what are you doing? Why would you write that down? That sounds like you've given up. It sounds like, what is going on? I felt the same way about those words that I felt about Jesus' words when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I find that deeply disturbing, Jesus. What are you saying that for? I am saying that because I need a listening ear. I need to feel that God is there. I need to feel that God is helping me. I need God. It's interesting that in this Psalm 22, in the same Psalm where Jesus asks, why are you so far? Why are you not there? In verse 24, he says, he has not despised or scorned the suffering of his afflicted one. He has not, and here's the phrase, listen to this. He has not hidden his face from him, but listened to his cry for help. So even when you feel like God has turned his back on you, his face is turned toward you. Timothy Keller, in a book that the Saturday morning guys are reading, book on prayer, speaks about the face of God. He says, when we speak to someone, we don't look at and address his or her kneecaps or feet, or back, or stomach. When we address the person, we address him to his or her face. The face is the relational gate into a person's mind and heart. Therefore, to seek God's face is not to find some place in space where God is located. Rather, it is to have our hearts enabled by the Holy Spirit to sense the reality of his presence. Now listen to verse 24 again. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of his, afflicted, of his afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him. But he has listened to his cry for help. When you do that, when you cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His face is turned toward you, and he is listening. You have his attention. God gives us these things. 
to help us be resilient when we grieve. I really want to consider some really concrete steps to help you move through grief. And they come right from this passage. And they may seem cliche. They may seem trite. You know the reason, I've said this before, the reason cliches become cliches is because we say them over and over again because they are always true. You got that? That's true. And I really think that our human tendency to say, that is such a cliche, is almost the work of the dark one making us not want to know the truth. Concrete steps to move through grief. They come right from this passage. And the first one is to put your trust in God. Verse 4 says that. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. I want you to think about that phrase, put their trust. It is an active thing. It is a decisive thing. It is something you either choose to do or choose not to do. I have put my trust in some stupid things. I put my trust in the wrong business and ordered something online, and it wasn't what I expected it to be. That was a decision on my part to trust them, and it was the wrong decision. I don't have anyone to blame but myself. I put my trust in, in the guy on the other end of the phone call a few years ago when at five in the morning he called and said, Pastor Steve, I was in your church a few weeks ago. My mom died. I'm stuck here in Florida. Could you wire me some, water, wire me some money? I wired him $200. I never heard of him before, never saw him after. Looked it up online afterward, found out that was his scam. He did that a lot. I put my trust in him. No one to blame but myself. That was my foolishness because... You decide who to trust and who not to trust. You have all decided to trust someone with a secret and it came back to bite you. And as mad as you may be with that person, you have to take responsibility that you're making the decision here. Nobody forced you to trust them. You made the decision. Because every time you choose to trust somebody, that's a decision on your part. I'm telling you to make a decision to put your trust in God. Got that? So you can't say to me, well, I don't know if I can do that. Yes, you can. You can make a decision to put your trust into a complete stranger on the phone calling you at five in the morning if you're foolish enough to do that. Foolishness, though, would be to say, I don't think I can trust God or I won't trust God. Make the decision. Put your trust in God. Trust is something that you decide to do. Here's a second concrete step, and it is this. Cry out to God. (laughs) This psalm contains little more than cry us out to God. People crying, God, Jesus crying out to God. In verse 5, it says that great men and women of the past, previous generations, to you they cried out and were saved. So when you experience a loss, you will likely need to spend some time crying out to God about it. As you cry out to him, tell him what you're struggling with and ask him to show you how to go on. As you cry out to him, tell him, tell him you feel that need and ask him where to turn. Tell him your heart and listen to his heart. I was recently with someone who just learned that a loved one passed away. As we're all sitting together in the room there, occasionally someone would say something that was a little bit out there. God, why would God let this happen? And almost always there's one pious person at the table says, oh honey, don't, don't blame God, you know? Go ahead and do it. I'm telling you, go ahead and do it. Give God what is on your heart. He's a big boy, he can take it. And the only way you will come to terms with it is if you will admit it to him. Cry out to God. And when you do, this gentle father we have, he holds you. Kind of like a little kitten. If you grew up on a farm, did you ever have a kitten that needed like tended to? And it's a wild kitten because it's a barn kitten. And you'd hold that little kitten that needed help. You had to use an eyedropper to to feed it, you know, because it's mom, something happened. 
And it would scratch and bite and everything else. And you would hold that kitten, allowing your skin to take all those scratches while you cared for his well-being. That's what God does to you. So go ahead and cry out. He'll hold you. He can help you. Third, this one might sound crazy to you, but it might be the most important one of all. Worship God. In the midst of your grief, worship God. It's right there in the psalm in verse 23. It says, I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. And it reminds me of a passage of scripture we looked at last week when we were together. When David's son had died, his son died. And and what, what does Jesus do? Or David do rather? It says, then David got up from the ground after he'd washed, put on lotions and changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. In the midst of his grief, he worshiped. He connected with God. Maybe he played his harp. Maybe he sang. Maybe he just stood before God in silence. Maybe he sat in the temple and prayed. Maybe he kneeled there. Maybe he took a scroll and read scripture. We don't know exactly what we did. We do know this. He worshiped. And when you find yourself in great grief and pain, turn your heart toward God and worship him and you will begin to become resilient. It might not make sense, but it happens. All of us grieve. All of us do. All of us face loss. And while some losses may seem bigger than others and some smaller than others, all of it hurts. If you grieve well, you will be resilient. If you grieve poorly, all bets are off. We need to learn to process our grief. You can't avoid dealing with your grief. You can't numb yourself with drugs, alcohol, and expect to come through your grief healthy. You can't sidestep your grief. You can't jump over it. In fact, we we stopped using a couple decades ago the words, I finally got over it. We instead say, I finally got through it. Because you can't jump over it, you can't sidestep it, you can't push it off to the side. The way to get through your grief is as Jesus did. Go through your grief. 